Please open your Bibles to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, first book of the Bible, will be in the first three verses of the chapter. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. That's page 8 of your pew Bibles. While you're doing that, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for the privilege we get to hear from you. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Change our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite things at this church is actually is to meet your families. So we have a lot of young people here. Oftentimes it's parents coming to visit. There may be actually some parents here this morning. Welcome. Uh, and I love, love meeting your parents. I love meeting your families. I love seeing not only the physical character traits that you inherit from your parents, but also uh, the mannerisms, the way of speaking, the dialects. Uh, I love it. As, as we all know, uh, many of us here that are members of this church are not from the Kansas City area. Uh, I'm from North Carolina, my wife and I are. And uh, it, yeah, it's just fun. It's fun to see where uh, some of my closest friends get uh, the traits that they, uh, that they have. Uh, my mom was here in Kansas City a few weeks ago. Unfortunately, none of my family. So I have, I have uh, three siblings and my parents. None of them have been able to attend a Sunday gathering with us. But my mom was here visiting during the week a few weeks ago. And some of you actually got the opportunity to meet her. And I was so proud. I was so proud for you to meet my mom. And I was thinking about that. Why is that? Why was, and maybe not everybody has that, but I was really proud for you to, to meet my mom. And it's because nobody knows me here in Kansas City, or not many people. Mark Carrington does, but not everybody. Nobody knows me in the context of my family. It feels like you don't really know me if you don't know my family. Now, there's something in me that wants you all to know the family I grew up in that had a huge part of shaping who I am. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, which is where we are, again, we're the first book of the Bible, Old Testament, everything before Christ. Um, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, I, I'm afraid we view it as if we're reading about someone else's family. This was a book written to a unique group of people, the Israelites. It really has nothing to do with us other than some bits and pieces that may point to Christ, that we use as prophetic um, utterances that are fulfilled in Christ. But what I want us to see this morning is that if you are a Christian— if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, the story of God's people in the Old Testament is your family story. This is made clear by the New Testament authors, many of them, the, the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, Jesus himself speaking, but most clearly by the Apostle Paul. Here's what Paul says in the New Testament from Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 7 and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you guys sing that song growing up? Father Abraham had many sons. You know that song? I am one of them and so are you. There is great theology in that song. If you share the faith of Abraham, then you are a son of Abraham. He is your father. He's the father of the faithful. The story of Abraham and then the nations that would come from him is our family history. 
Uh, in the same way that you may share some traits from your earthly father, both, both good and bad traits, and, and as a father, that, that's a good thing for me and a bad thing. It, it scares me that uh, my children will probably inherit some of the bad things, even the sins that I struggle with. They will inherit those. Um, but you should also share traits of your spiritual father, Abraham. We should look like Abraham. Not only that, these promises to Abraham are your promises. We're going we're to read about promises made to him, and we can claim those promises as New Testament Christians who share Abraham's faith. Uh, and Abraham is who we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to see uh, two points, two main points from the passage. The call of Abraham and the promise. God's call and God's promise from Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Before we get there, uh, I'd like to just take a brief minute to do a high-level summary of where we are in the Bible up to this point. So again, we're in Genesis 12. The Bible starts in Genesis 1. If there's three rules, you guys have probably heard this, there's three rules of real estate, right? Location, location, location. You could say there's also three rules of biblical interpretation, context, context, context. So we need to get the context. We're kind of just pulling this out uh, at the beginning of Genesis. So let's try to get the context. Genesis chapter 3 records the worst day in the history of the world. Adam and Eve, human beings made in God's image to fully obey God's word, listened to the serpent and disobeyed their creator. They ate the fruit God had forbidden them to eat. The world was cursed and the rest of mankind inherited Adam's sinful nature. That's true of us. Every human being that's born now inherits the sinful nature from Adam. The result was spiritual death and separation from their creator, God. They were kicked out of the garden, east of Eden. The whole history of the Bible is what God has done to restore that fellowship with them. Adam and Eve were expelled from intimate, direct fellowship with God in the garden of Eden. It's bad news. Worst day in the history of the world. But there's a glimmer of hope. Genesis 3.15, we know it. Uh, The the history of the church is called it the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised that one day a descendant or offspring or seed of Eve will be born that will crush the head of the serpent, overcoming the curse that Adam and Eve had brought onto the world. The rest of the book of Genesis and the entire Bible can be viewed for this lens, through this lens of looking for that seed, that offspring, that son that will be born to reverse the curse of Adam and Eve's sin. So if we march a little bit further in Genesis, so we were just in Genesis chapter 3, is it Cain from Genesis 4? He's the first son born to Adam and Eve, but he kills his brother Abel in jealous anger. No, it's not Cain. Is it Seth? After his birth, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord again. The line would come through Seth, but no, Seth is not the promised offspring. Is it Noah? He does save a remnant from the flood, but sadly, the last picture we get of of Noah is lying drunk and naked in his tent after drinking too much from his vineyard. The creation over which he was supposed to have dominion now has dominion over him. No, it's not Noah. As Genesis progresses, the effects of sin get worse and worse. As people scatter and multiply, sin gets worse and worse. Genesis 11 records another bad day in the history of the world. This is the immediate context of our passage. Genesis 11 coming, obviously, just before Genesis 12. It's the Tower of Babel. 
a group of fallen humanity gathered together at Shinar to build a tower to reach the heavens. They wanted to make a name for themselves. That's in verse 4 there, if you, you look back on your, in your Bibles. They were asserting their equality with God by building a structure to reach up to heaven itself. But God will have none of it. He comes down, he confuses the languages of the people and disperses them over the face of the earth. And this is the context where we're introduced to Abram. And if this morning, he's named Abram here at the beginning passages uh, in, in Genesis. He's later, his name is changed to Abraham. So I will probably use both interchangeably because I don't know if I'll have the discipline to not say Abraham. So I'll just use the term Abraham. But uh, Abram, the name means exalted father. He's later changed Abraham. His name is changed to Abraham, meaning the father of a multitude. And that's a result of the promises we're going to look at this morning. He's, he's promised that he will have a multitude. A, uh, d- many descendants will come from him. One pastor has said, it may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. Another pastor said, all of world history is related to the promises that God makes to Abraham. So let's look at these verses. Let's look at the first three verses of Genesis 12. Again, he's our father in the faith. And have a, a couple takeaways, a couple observations and a couple takeaways. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Read, or, uh, yeah, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Two main points this morning. God's call from verse 1, the beginning of verse 1. God's promise, which is end of verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. God's call and God's promise. Let's look at God's call. First, a clarification of the word calling. So we use the term calling a lot in Christian circles. I think even outside of Christian circles, we use it. You may feel like you're called to your job. Uh, we even use the term vocation. The, the root of that word, like vocal, means to call. It, it, it's, a, it's your vocation, what you've been called to. Uh, we feel called to marry the person that we've been married. Uh, we may even feel called to ministry. And, and those are all good. I'm not knocking those uses of the term call. But the call that we're talking about here, the call that we see in this passage of Scripture and through the rest of the Bible, is the particular effectual call of God. This is God speaking. It's special revelation. So that's the call that we're talking about right now. The effective, effectual, special call of God speaking to Abraham. So sub-point number one, who made the call? Who made the call? It was God. Start of verse one. Now the Lord said to Abraham. Let's stop there for a second. This is amazing considering the context. God has already judged sinful humanity many times. You think of Adam and Eve getting expelled from the garden. Uh, There's the flood. With Noah, there's the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the people and confusing the languages. But here's the good news. God still speaks to his lost image bearers. He comes to them 
and he speaks to them. There was nothing special about Abraham. It's not like God found the one righteous person living on the world and chose him to make a nation out of him. No, not at all. In fact, it's the opposite. He was chosen not because of his goodness, but because of God's grace alone. We just sang about grace. He was just like the people of Babel worshiping idols. Joshua 24.2 says he also was an idol worshiper. He was just like these people uh, that wanted to build the tower from chapter 11 up to God to make a name for themselves. Abraham's call was the result of the sovereign grace of God. Abraham is an example, one of many examples from scripture of the sovereignty of God carrying out the divine declaration. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I I will have compassion. That's from Exodus 33, 19. Paul cites that in the famous passage of Romans 9, 15. It's all of God's grace, nothing foreseen in Abraham, all of God's grace. So this is the doctrine of effectual uh, effectual calling the doctrine of effectual calling. In theology, we speak of two calls. There's the general call, and then there's the internal or effectual call. The general call and the effectual call. The general call is just the gospel that's proclaimed indiscriminately to all people. That's the general call of the gospel. That's me preaching here this morning. This is the general call. Come to Christ. All who hear my voice, come to Christ. That's the general call. Uh, Some people resist due to the hardness of their hearts, and some receive by faith. That's the general call. But then there's what we call the effectual call or the inward call. This is the inward, spiritual, effective call of God to God's elect, the people that he's chosen from the foundation of the world. Formerly, they were dead in sin. Now they are alive in Christ. We studied that from Ephesians chapter 2, two weeks ago. The, the state of all human beings before Christ effectually called them and brought them out of, out of death was, was spiritual death. God's call accomplishes its purposes. God's call accomplishes its, pur- its purposes. Second subpoint. So we've seen who made the call God. Now let's look at the result of the call. The result of God's call, it's separation. We get that from the end of verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram left everything. He left his family. He left his friends. He left his country. And he left his home. The very essence of the Christian faith is separation from the world. It is an obedience which involves great sacrifice. That's the essence of the Christian faith. Jesus said that very clearly. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Often the greatest opposition to our Christian faith is our family and our best friends. Have you experienced that? Thankfully, that wasn't true of me. My, my parents, very godly parents, preached the gospel. Uh, me and all my siblings responded by faith. But I know some of you here uh, have had that experience. That was true of my parents. Uh, some of the greatest opposition they had was from their own parents. None of our relationships should stand in the way 
of our obedience to Jesus. None of our relationships should stand in the way of our obedience to Jesus. I love the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Has anybody read The Pilgrim's Progress? I see a few hands raised. Yeah, it's written by John Bunyan back in the 17th century. When Christian, the the protagonist, the main character, uh, evangelist, uh, gave him his book. It was the Bible. And, and Christian saw that he was living in the city of destruction and it was going to be destroyed. And he was upset by this and the burden grew on his back. And Christian knew that he needed to flee from the city of destruction. And do you guys remember this? What did he do as he was fleeing? His wife and all his kids, they thought he was crazy. Like, come back. What are you doing? All, all his townspeople. And he ran away with his fingers in his ear, right? That, that is the picture of the Christian who's been called out of their former life. Even if it's your spouse who's trying to bring you back, you need to separate from them. Again, that's, that's, that's what the effectual call of God does. Even leaving your own spouse or your family for the sake of Christ. One pastor is called the effectual call, a separating sword, cutting men off from old associations. It makes us feel as the world is not our home. We live in it as a stranger lives in a foreign land. We feel that we are in the world, but not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Have you felt that lately? If you are sitting here and you have responded to God's call, do you feel like you've been separated from the world? I know I do. Uh, Any... Anytime I read, yes, Beth, anytime I read the news, see, um, you know, whether it's politics or or national news or even just the way that our culture is moving, I I feel that. And I think we may feel that more and more. Uh, And in some sense, that's sad. I have a mourning about that. Uh, But in another sense, that's normal, that God has always designed the Christian to feel like they are in the world, but not of the world and to have a little bit of discomfort in their time in the world. Separation is the fruit resulting from the root of faith. If there's one thing you know about Abraham, he is commended for the rest of the Bible for one thing, it's his faith. Paul makes much of his faith. Jesus makes much of his faith. James makes much of his faith and and how that faith actually works. Faith means believing the word of God. God spoke to Abraham and Abraham believed. Abraham didn't know where he was going. Hebrews 11, which Kaylee read a second ago, and we're going to read it again in a little bit later. Uh, He didn't know where he was going fully, but he knew who he was going with, his God. And so he left. And that is true in our spiritual lives as well. I wonder, do we sometimes present only the positive effects of the gospel? Having purpose in life? No more guilty feelings and experience of love. Some of these subjective effects of the gospel without discussing the life that is being left behind. The repentance, the turning away of our former lives. Do we shy away from emphasizing the dying to self and taking up your cross? Christians, this morning, we are calling people out of their former lives of sin. Are we a church that is ready to receive people that have given up their families their friends, and their lives for the sake of Christ. We should be that church. We should be the church that when when people have forsaken everything, they can come to this church and feel like they have a family. I know many of you have read some of the books of Rosaria Butterfield. She was an English professor at Syracuse University, tenured, living in a lesbian relationship, specializing in queer theory. I don't think there's much that could be further from the life that God calls us to. But she was converted by the faithful friendship of a local pastor through God's word. Here's what she says about her conversion. 
Conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face-to-face with the living God. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. She called it train wreck, comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. Was I willing to be considered stupid by those who didn't know Jesus? I didn't choose Christ. Nobody chooses Christ. Christ chooses you or you're dead. After Christ chooses you, you respond because you must, period. It's not a pretty story. So I ask us this morning, do you believe God? Everyone sitting here, do you believe God? Have you answered his call? Have you separated yourself from the world? If you're a Christian sitting here this morning, we should find great comfort in God's call to us. This should give us great assurance. If you've been called by God, you may have been separated from the world in your former associations, but you will never be separated from God. Paul is very clear on that in Romans chapter 8. We call this the golden chain. Romans, uh, Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's the effectual call. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the effectual call again. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'll stop right there for just a second. That is good news. Going from predestination to calling all the way to glorification. If you've been called by God this morning, you can have full assurance that you will eventually reach the end of that chain and be glorified with him in heaven. Verse 35, skipping down. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, we may have been separated from the world, but we will never be separated from Christ if you are a Christian this morning, if you responded to that effectual call. Another challenge to the Christians this morning Share the gospel with others. Proclaim the gospel. God uses means. He is sovereign in his grace. He chooses who he will save, but he's glad to use means to do that. And the means that he's given is the sharing of the gospel. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That should give us great confidence. Though people are born dead in their sins, no gimmicks and manipulation can change that. But God is in the business of changing hearts and makes people alive in Christ. And the means that he uses to do that is the preaching of the gospel. So let's go out and share the gospel indiscriminately and see people come to faith in Christ. If you aren't a Christian this morning and you can hear my voice, answer God's call. Like Adam, like Abraham, you are a sinner separated from God. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment that sinners like you deserve. Look to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. God is calling you now. Come to him. So we've seen main point number one. We've seen God's call. 
Now we see God's promise. God's promise. The first promise is a promise of land. So there's going to be three subpoints: land, seed, and blessing. First promise is a promise of land. At the end of verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. As we discussed, God called Abraham to leave his home to go to another land that God would show him. We, knew, we know from later passages in the Bible, this is, this is the promised land. This is Canaan. Uh, that's explicit in Genesis 17, 8. Here's the good news. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, well, even before Genesis chapter 3, God created human beings to live in fellowship with him, to live with him in his place. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what he wanted. And the problem that the Bible is trying to solve ever since Genesis 3 is how can a holy God dwell again with a sinful, rebellious, unholy humanity? The entire story of scripture is what God has done to make that possible. When Adam and Eve were forced out of the Garden of Eden due to sin, God made a plan to restore humanity to the land of promise through Abraham. So Abraham, in a sense, is the new Adam who would dwell with God in this place. The immediate fulfillment of this land promise was through Joshua. So Joshua, Moses led Israel, God's people in the wilderness wanderings. Um, Sadly, he sinned against God, didn't honor him as holy, was not allowed to enter the land. Uh, Then God raised up Joshua and Joshua brought God's people into the promised land. And at the end of Joshua, Joshua 21, 43 to 45, we see that the land promise was actually literally immediately fulfilled here. Uh, Verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it. And they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Listen to this, verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Our God is a promise-keeping God. But here's the thing, even though that promise was fulfilled immediately and physically with Joshua's conquest of the land, Abraham believed that the promised land wasn't the final fulfillment of God's promise to him. Isn't that crazy? Abraham could see through that promise to a better promise. The author to the book of Hebrews is explicit in that. Kaylee read this for us earlier. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, this is the great faith chapter, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Look at this. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham wasn't looking just for some physical land. He actually saw through that promise, a promise of a future city, a heavenly city, as he said, whose designer and builder is God. If Abraham saw that, we're even closer to seeing that as well. So the first promise, promise of land. Second promise, seed, promise of a seed. Again, from verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. Here, it's articulated as a great nation. Later on, in verse 7, if you just look down a little bit, uh, God promises an an offspring or seed to him. So we're lumping all that together. Seed, many descendants, offspring, a nation. uh, that's, That's all one promise. 
In later chapters, God clarifies his promise to give Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. That's a lot of descendants. We know that Isaac, the son, the son of promise born to Abraham and Sarah, is the immediate fulfillment of this promise. But this is also a continuation of the promises in Genesis 3.15 that one day a descendant or offspring or seed of the woman, Eve, would crush or bruise the head of the serpent. This is a continuation of that seed. Again, we can trace that theme all the way through scripture, the promise of this descendant or theme, which side note is why I know often if you're going through a Bible reading plan and you come to the genealogies, those are a little bit boring. We tend to skip over those. But this is one of the reasons. There's many reasons why those are important. But one of the main reasons is we are still tracing... The promises of God were coming through a physical descendant, a physical seed, and we can see those traced through uh, some of the genealogies in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Abraham's descendants will become a great nation that will be God's own people. Lumped in with that promise, Abraham's name will also be great as a result of his great descendants. Again, we're still talking about Abraham. His, that, that promise has been fulfilled. He's the father of the faithful. In its immediate context, th- this was the failed aspiration of the Tower of Babel builders from Genesis 11.4. So if you go back one chapter, then they said, the builders at the Tower of Babel, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. God comes down. It's funny. The fact that he even came down, it's like he, he's looking, look at, all, look at those human beings who I made out of the dust of the earth. They think they're going to build a tower up to me. He came down. He could barely see him. He came down, confused their languages and said, they want to make a name for themselves? No. But you know what, Abraham, I, I will make your name great. It's, it's, a, it's a flip of the curses that God gave to the Tower of Babel builders in Genesis chapter 11. So the promises, promise of land, promise of seed or descendants, and final promise, promise of blessing, promise of blessing. Verses two and three, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a promise to bless Abraham and then bless the nations through Abraham. He would be blessed in order to be a blessing. Notice that the personal blessing comes first. We cannot be a blessing to others unless God has first blessed us. You know, when you're on an airplane, uh, they're training you on if the airbags come down, put your, not airbags, what are they called? Oxygen masks come down, put yours on first so that you can help others. That's true in the spiritual life as well. You you cannot be a blessing to others unless you have first received that blessing for yourself. Until it can be said to you, I will bless you, it cannot be said so that you will be a blessing. But notice that this blessing is to all the families of the earth, the nations. This is not just a New Testament reality, although the Apostle Paul uses the term mystery to describe how the gospel has always been meant for the nations for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He calls that a mystery because it is veiled a little bit in the Old Testament. But through the eyes of faith that we've been given by the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, uh, it's also pretty clear in the Old Testament as well. From the beginning, God has planned to have a people from every nation worshiping him. 
This should motivate our passion for missions. We want to be a church that wants to see the gospel proclaimed in all the nations of the world. And I know there's many of us here in the congregation who have that passion as well. And that is a fulfillment of this promise to Abraham right here. to To be a blessing and then bless the nations through being that blessing. You could see in these three promises, land, seed, and blessing, the reverse of the curse that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Let me explain that. The curse of the fall will will be replaced by the blessing of salvation. In each of these promises, land, seed, and blessing, there's a promise to undo the curses from Genesis 3. God promises to turn curses into blessing. He's such a good God. In Genesis 3, the land was cursed. The ground or the land was cursed. Eve's childbearing was cursed. And now these are turned into blessing. Abraham has promised a new land. A seed through Abraham's wife Sarah will crush Satan. And blessing instead of cursing. How great is our God. We said at the beginning that if you share the faith of Abraham, he is your father. But the Apostle Paul in Genesis chapter, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3 is even clearer on why that is. Why can we call Abraham our father if we have the faith of Abraham? Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That's amazing. Paul tells us that the promises were made to a single offspring and that that offspring is Jesus himself. Further down, verse 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. It's Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It is in Christ, Warnell Road, that these promises are fulfilled. Not just to the physical descendants of Abraham. There probably aren't any physical descendants of Abraham in this room. Maybe there are some with a, with a Jewish heritage. Um, but to the spiritual descendants as well, which is you, you, you and me if we have Abraham's faith. God promises to, God's promises to Abraham are your promises in Christ. They are our promises. In fact, Jesus is the promise. He is the land. He is the seed. And he is the blessing. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So here's how it works. God makes promises to Abraham and his seed. We saw that, Genesis 12. Christ is the seed. Paul is clear about that in Galatians 3. Faith unites us to Christ. That union with Christ through faith makes us seed or his offspring or his descendants with Christ. And so we become heirs of the promises. So these promises to Abraham are our promises as well. And that's really good news if you're sitting here this morning. All of God's promises to Abraham were fulfilled in physical ways to Abraham and his descendants by birth. But they're also being fulfilled in spiritual ways to Abraham's descendants by faith to us. And they will be fulfilled in eternal ways when Christ returns and his kingdom comes and the new heavens and the new earth. 
Jesus is the true offspring or seed of Abraham, the one who will finally crush the head of the serpent. He's our place of rest, our promised land. He's given us a place among the church, his body, and one day we'll make this entire world our eternal home in the new creation. And he's our eternal blessing. His name is great, and he gives us that name. He is the blessing because he is the substitute for human sinners. He lived a life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. In him, we have every spiritual blessing. He blesses us infinitely, and we have the privilege of communicating that blessing to all peoples through the preaching of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon has said, 19th century famous Baptist pastor in London, Beloved, if you and I are to be made a blessing to others, it must be, our, be by our becoming, excuse me, by our bringing the Lord Jesus Christ to those whom we meet from day to day. Do not talk to a friend without speaking of your Savior. Do not belong in a house without introducing that dear name. There is so much of savor, of sweetness, of comfort, of healing, of life in that precious name of Jesus that you cannot too often speak of it or too frequently introduce it into all sorts of companies. Oh, that we would all first come to him, find the blessing that is treasured up in him, and then go forth and be a blessing to our own family and to all around us. Oh, Lord, grant that it may be so for thy dear son's sake. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we praise you as a promise-giving and promise-keeping God. Thank you that Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises. He is our land. He is our seed. He is our blessing. I pray that we would be faithful to him by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.